This is the Cigar Snob Podcast. I am Nick Jimenez. These days it seems like there is just no aspect of our lives that is outside the reach of divisive politics. Cigars are not an exception, unfortunately, with government seemingly on a perpetual assault of the rights of cigar smokers, tobacconists, and manufacturers at the federal, state, and municipal levels. Few states are more notorious for their restrictive anti-tobacco policies than New York. With a gubernatorial election coming later this year, incumbent Andrew Cuomo, who is a safe bet in the Democrat primary, faces not only a Republican challenger, but also an unusually competent third-party challenge from libertarian Larry Sharp. I had a chance to speak with Larry about FDA regulation as well as prohibitions at the state and local level and what his own libertarian approach to these issues might be if he ended up taking the helm in Albany. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Larry Sharp, libertarian candidate for governor of New York. Talk a bit about uh, your background, uh, where you come from professionally and also philosophically. And I think I'm, I'm especially interested in you know, how those experiences that you had as, uh, as a Marine, as an educator, and as an entrepreneur sort of end, what role those things played in your landing in the libertarian world? Sure. Look, I'm a kid who was born in Manhattan, adopted by a uh, German immigrant and a guy she met in the army when he was stationed over there, raised in the Bronx as a little kid and on Long Island and Suffolk County as a teenager. Uh, my family was not wealthy at all. My mother was a basically a waitress and a bank employee, and my father was a cop and a corrections officer. My father died when I was 12, which um, made me just really, of course, have problems as any kid would. Absolutely. And then I ran off to the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old to try to get away from my family. So I went to the Marine Corps for about six years, spent a lot of time, you know, trying to be a man, being Mr. Hardcore Guy. Got a college degree while I was there. When I came back, my mother had been, um, had a lot of trouble. She had actually got addicted to legal drugs and then eventually illegal drugs. And was a convicted felon, and I had to pull her out of prison. And when I got out of prison, she was literally, you know, in trouble. So I had to try to get help her get a job, get her set up. And I saw how she struggled. She struggled to find a job. And when she got a job, she was basically a hostage because she was afraid she'd be fired any day now. They'd find out she was a felon because she was lying on all of her forms so she can get a job. So we decided to become entrepreneurs. One of the reasons why I became an entrepreneur was so I could make my mom free. So she wouldn't have to be a hostage to anybody and she could be on her own. And so we started a small trucking business. That business, uh, I let that business go and let them go run that business. Once they were happy with it, my mom and, her, and my stepdad. And then I went off and started my own business. That one didn't go well, so I sold that one off. And then I started this one recently, uh, last 14 years ago. And I've been doing this now for 14 years. I'm a trainer, a coach, a teacher. I teach leadership and sales, entrepreneurship, uh, business. I teach, I've taught before at the graduate level of both Yale and Columbia. I teach now at Baruch. I've also taught at John Jay College, and I have lots of large clients, Governor Singapore, Estee Lauder, the New York Mets, stuff like that. I've been a lot of those different companies I've dealt with. Yeah. I've also helped small companies grow, um, all of those things. Now, how did I move towards a libertarian world? Well, first off, entrepreneurs are by default very libertarian. It's simply how it works. Um, they want more freedom. They want to do things their own way. They want less government regulation. They want to innovate. It's what they want to do. And how did I get to the Libertarian Party? To be forward, I was not very political. It wasn't really my thing. 
but I did like one philosopher by the name of Robert Ringer, who I liked his business philosophy. He wrote several books on how to brand and how to grow your business, how to deal with people. And he was one of my, my mentors that I would actually read about and follow him. And he was someone who read Atlas Shrugged. And so I read that book and I thought, ah, I see where it's coming from. I'm not really an objectivist. I'm not really an Ayn Rander. But that was my intro into that political side of sure. less government and more freedom. Then in 2012, when I heard Gary Johnson speak, you know, I couldn't really hear most politicians, but I could hear Gary Johnson because he was an entrepreneur. He was the guy I was. He was the same entrepreneur, and I heard what he was saying, and it made sense. And so that's the guy I could hear. He was libertarian. I researched the party, and I realized I'm a libertarian. I'm about smaller government. I'm about not using force. I'm about allowing for innovation, letting people succeed and fail, and allowing the consumer to make more decisions and not allowing the government to be a monopoly. Sure. And that is really the issue. Monopoly is bad just because it's government doesn't make it good all of a sudden. Sure, sure. Um, I know that you have, uh, in terms of these regulations that affect both sides, you tend, or at least have tended to focus more in your campaign on the vape products and how those are affected uh, by uh, government intervention. So talk a little bit about, uh, number one, how you've seen that uh, the FDA and maybe other state and local regulations affect vape products, whether in New York or nationally, because I think our audience, you know, tends to uh, see and think about all of this more in terms of handmade cigars. Uh, and also why it is that you feel so strongly about it. I don't know whether you have like a, a connection to vape products or some experience with them. So why, uh, why the attraction to that issue narrowly? Um, the, to be forward, I'm not a vapor, and I have absolutely no connection to the vape industry. This isn't personal for me in any way, shape, or form. The idea is they came to me, I saw they were right, so now I support them. I don't have to be part of something. I don't have to have an, uh, an interest. I do smoke cigars once in a while. It's very rare that I smoke cigars, uh, cigars, probably once every couple of years when people get together and friends of mine are having them. But it doesn't mean I wouldn't support the cigar industry. Of course I would. Sure. I support any industry that I think government is holding back. What I want more than anything is for the average American to be able to grow their own business, to grow their own world, to be able to become powerful and popular on their own, to gain success in the way that they want to gain success. I want people to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the government should be facilitating that not stopping that in the name of safety. Not that I'm against the government trying to make us safer. I'm actually okay with that concept. What do I mean by that? If the FDA wants to exist, I'm actually okay with it existing. What I'm not okay with doing is physically stopping people. If the FDA wants to say, we have, we have guidelines and standards on tobacco products, I'm okay with that. And if you, as someone who creates those products, want the FDA stamp, then you should go to the FDA, get their stamp. But if you don't care about their stamp, you should still be able to sell your product. Just be transparent and say, we don't have the FDA stamp. And the response all the time is, but then Larry, everybody will die. Well, how about health food stores? <laughs> health food stores throughout the country don't have FDA approval. Where are all the deaths of, of all the people from the health food stores? They don't exist. The FDA has killed and maimed far more people than every single health food store ever created throughout all of time. And it's not even close. So my point being, if the FDA wants to create standards, not regulations, 
standards, I'm fine with it. And guess what? The cigar industry should also create standards. And retailers should also create standards. And we should have competing standards. If we have competing standards, the consumers will be able to pick the standards that matter most to them. Some consumers may want to have multiple standards. I don't mind. And then the stores will realize, you know what? My audience, my consumers require these standards and will only accept products with certain standards. This is how the consumer decides what is valuable and what is not valuable. And what's most important about this is if you have only regulations, regulations only change when lobbyists decide to change them, not because things get better or safer at technology changes or information changes. No, because lobbyists decide to do so, which means by default, big business will always have the advantage. But if we had instead have competing standards, standards will change as technology changes, as information changes, as consumer demand changes, they will shift and adjust. And not just that, now small business has a chance of success, and so does innovation. Regulation run by big business will always stifle innovation. That's how it works. I don't want that. Yeah. This is why I don't like the FDA. This is why I want them to become a, a body that creates standards, not regulations. And another good example of that is UL, Underwriters Laboratory. These are guys who, you, if you want a standard, you want that stamp for your electronic you know, equipment, you go to them and they give it, or they don't. But you can still sell your product if you want to, as long as you are transparent and let people know. And that's my issue. Sure. And to your point about uh, about lobbies and, and large business interests being sort of the catalyst behind some of these uh, regulations, one of the big uh, companies that supported this expansion of FDA regulation at the end of the Obama years was Altria, which is the parent company of Philip Morris, uh, John Middleton, U.S. Smokeless. And, and, of course, they have all the interest in the world in seeing the FDA impose the same regulations on mom-and-pop vape shops or small, you know, three-table cigar factories in Tampa yes. uh, as, as they have to deal with, with their army of attorneys to keep them in compliance. Of course, because two things begin to happen. Number one is a natural barrier to entry, which for the big business is amazing. They love that. Again, stifling innovation, stifling the little guy. But something else happens. They act in the interest of safety, and their safety is they punish you as if that's what happens. See, they're okay with a $100,000 fine or a $50,000 fine because they're already not paying much taxes anyway because they've shifted the tax code to where they can, they can find the loopholes for not paying taxes. So they take that amount of money and shift it aside so they can now pay the fines. You know, a big company like Philip Morris will laugh at paying a $100,000 fine. A small shop, they're finished. That's the end. They're going under. That's also why they like it. It is not only a barrier to entry, but it's an easy tripwire to make sure small uh, manufacturers and small stores go under. So in sort of shifting gears a little bit, what has your experience been in New York so far in terms of people being receptive to this message, especially as it relates to uh, regulation of small businesses? And and I, I think what this particular subject has that's a little bit different is that people see, I think it's probably fair, you know, uh, tobacco consumption is a vice, uh, just like consumption of any other sort of, you know, frivolous hobby thing, whether it's beer or or whatever. Uh, what's your experience been with how to communicate to people about the idea that government 
perhaps doesn't have a role to play even in regulating vices, because I think that's something that is relatable. Okay, several points. Hold on, several points. Vice is horrible. The concept that we would even say something's a vice. If it makes me happy, that makes it a vice. Does that mean sex is a vice? Does that mean video games is a vice? Does that mean drinking soda is a vice? What does that mean? Well, I mean, none of your business. Well, hold on, let me finish. How about government? None of your business. What is my vice or your vice or someone else's vice? How about as long as I'm not hurting someone else, I don't care. That's my entire point. If I'm not hurting or harming someone else, I don't care. If you want to say you shouldn't smoke in a certain store because people are concerned about secondhand smoke, I'm fine. It's your own private property. You can't smoke in your private property. Sure. I don't, that's fine. But that's but to say I can't smoke, who are you to tell me what is a vice? So now government decides what's a vice and what isn't. Government now decides what actions I can take with my own body. It is my life and my body. I right. don't even believe in the concept of vice. I, don't, I know I was a little bit aggressive on that. I apologize. <laughs> but it is a personal thing for me. Sure. It is personal. I do not accept the idea that government can decide what a vice is or isn't. Right. I do not accept it in any way, shape, or form. I, I deny the premise of the question. Right. No, and, and I think we agree. We may just be defining vice a little bit differently. Um, but, uh, but I don't care if it hurts you. You know, you know what? No sure, one exactly. angry for the guy who decides to be an accountant and he decides to eat fast food because he's always working 14 hours a day exactly. and he drops right. it of a heart attack at 50. And that's not a vice, but he didn't smoke or drink, so he's okay. No, he, he still killed himself. He worked himself to death and ate nothing but McDonald's every day. He still killed himself. Right, yeah. We, we, I, I think we agree that government shouldn't be in the position of drawing the lines to define vice. My, my, only qu- my question was more, how do you communicate these ideas to people who maybe offer a little bit of resistance? Because so many people are so used to the idea that government has this role. And so the question was really, what have you found to be effective in opening uh, yeah. people's eyes to that idea that government doesn't have a role here if there are no victims, even if it is yeah, something and, that on the surface looks destructive. I, uh, I'm with you. Here's what I often say. I ask the people that they want to punish the people who have the vice or help them. What is your goal? Do you want to punish or help? And they always say help. If someone says punish, you don't have to talk anymore. We can stop talking. Move on. Right? If someone goes, I want to punish the bad people. Have a nice day. Move on. We don't, we don't, you and I don't have to talk. You're going to vote Republican or Democrat, have a nice day, go ahead, vote to punish people. But if you're saying, I want to help people, great. You help people not by prohibiting it. You help people by showing them you care, giving them safer alternatives, giving them opportunities to stop their bad habits, all those things. That's how you actually stop people from having bad self-destructive behavior. And here's the best part. If you educate them and they, and, and they still see it and you start looking at the actual results, you will sometimes realize that the behavior you thought was bad actually isn't bad. An example I'll give is vaping, occasional cigar smoking, and marijuana use. All three of those. If you just do those three, the odds of you actually heavily affecting your health are zero to none. But you can also use all three of those to stop other habits that are worse. So if you actually smoke cigarettes which will actually shorten your lifespan, you could actually use cigars as a way of weaning yourself off of cigarettes. You could use vaping. You could use marijuana, meaning marijuana products, not necessarily marijuana cigarettes. You could use marijuana products. 
There are many things you could use to adjust your habits to have better habits. But the key is you're not going to change your habits unless you want to change your habits. And maybe you enjoy smoking or maybe you enjoy drinking or you enjoy some of these things and you don't want to change your habits. It's your life. If that makes you happy, please be happy. Right, right. So um, I talk about the idea of the outcomes. You asked how I talk to them. I talk about what do you want the outcome to be? Do you just want to punish people? If you think that prohibition works, let me explain all the times prohibition has worked. Okay, I'm finished. Never. It never works ever. Prohibition just makes a black market. Prohibition just makes, uh, makes violence. Prohibition makes people go underground. Prohibition never works. If you want anything that you believe is bad to stop, shine a light on it. And it will, uh, you'll either see it as not bad because the light's on it, or people will see it as bad and they'll stop. That's just how it works. Right. So last thing, um, talk a bit about you know, what your approach would be. Supposing, you know, you're the governor of New York and you've got what in any state is this very, you know, convoluted web of regulations and, and state and federal yeah. and local well, laws about where people can smoke, can't smoke, sell, buy. Uh, yeah. What is, you know, in, in sort let of general terms, what does the plan specific, look like there? Yeah. Let me give you some specifics and let me give you some philosophy and let me give you the reason why I care. Okay. I'll cover all three. Reason why I care. Industries like the cigar industry, industries like the vaping industry, these are industries that create several things. Number one, they create community. We need more community. If you go to any cigar shop, any vape shop, what do you find in there? Couches. Yes. Any of them. People sit down and talk. They chat with each other. They create community. It's every cigar shop. It's every vape shop. That's how it works. Half of them have video games in them now. They can sit back and play video games together <laughs> and watch TV together. It's insane how good these things are. Why in the world would I want to stop us from having more local community? Main Street is already being crushed in so many different ways, and here's a great way to increase Main Street. Why would I stop that? It's amazing. We should keep it going. Here in New York, you will find there are two industries that tend to create community and begin to explode um, local uh, communities, and those are the, the beer industry and the coffee industry. Why? They're unregulated compared to all the rest. They're the least regulated industries we have in the state. That's why. Take away the regulation, you will increase community, you will see things grow. But there's a second piece. Along with that community is the idea of the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur can grow. You can become a cigar, a vape. You can become an entrepreneur in that world literally out of your basement, literally out of your garage. It is possible for you to grow something, be something, do something to make your life better and to have community and be an entrepreneur in your own world in these industries. Why in the world would we destroy them? Larry, how can that be true? Again, look at coffee and beer in my state. That's what's happening. Tons of entrepreneurs, people starting it up because it's very, very low regulated. There is a low barrier to entry. You're getting a lot of innovation, a lot of new ideas, and young people staying in my state. Cigars and vaping are exactly that, and I want to support them. That's why I support these industries. And I don't vape, and I rarely smoke cigars. And I still support these industries because they are that valuable to me and my state. Number two, generically, overall, here's the rule on all licensing and all regulations. When it comes to licensing, 
if I would ask my friend to do it, I don't need a license for it. What does that mean? There are licensing in New York State to have a vape shop, licenses to have a tobacco shop, licensing to have to braid hair, licensing to walk dogs. I'm not joking. These are all licensed in New York State. So would I ask my friend to open up a cigar store? Sure, if he knew it. Would I ask my friend to walk my dog? Sure, go ahead. Would I ask my friend to braid my hair? Sure, go ahead. Why's your license? Would I ask my friend to, um, you know, uh, uh, defend me in a criminal case? No, get a license to be a lawyer. Would I ask my friend to take out my gallbladder? No, doctor, get, get a license. <laughs> I got it. If you wouldn't ask your friend to do it, then get a license. If you'd ask your friend, why do you have a license? The problem with all the licensing, particularly in the stores, is they're not being licensed for safety. They're being licensed for control. And I'm against that categorically. Let the consumers decide. But Larry, what if we have more than one cigar shop in a, in a town? Let the consumers decide. If there aren't enough cigar smokers in that town, then the store will go under. Bad business decision on his part. He'll pay the price. If there's enough, then they both will do well. But it's the best part. If there's one of them and he sucks, the consumers get a crappy store. But if there can be as many as they want, and this guy happens to be a bad uh, store owner, someone else will open up and be better, and the consumers will get a better store. That's what I want. So conceptually, I'm against licensing unless it is something I would not ask your friend to do. When it comes to regulations in general, as I've said to you before, regulations are okay if they're standards, meaning I don't mind if a state or a county or a local area want to come up with standards that they want to have for anything, a store, uh, cigars, cigarettes, I don't care, they have standards. But that doesn't mean they stop the person from opening that store or selling that product. So if they want to say, we're going to check by every SKU if this is good or bad, wonderful, do that. And you as the person who creates the product or has the store, you decide if you want to put your product through their scrutiny or not. If right. we have multiple competing standards, we will have better, safer standards. Now, how do I do that physically? Number one, I literally start giving licenses to everybody who wants them unless I think they shouldn't have them, which will show the, the futility of it and they will go away. Many of these licensings are actually set up not by law, but by individual boards and like the FDA and, and authorities and such, which actually the, the, the governor will have some control over when it comes to local. I can literally just stop those uh, at, with executive order. So those I'll just stop with executive order. <clears throat> those that are not by executive order or came to my executive order, I can simply not enforce or make low enforcement rates or just grant them, easily just grant them. Now, when it comes to, to, to federal, I don't have control of federal, obviously. I'll just be a governor. But there's a law right now in Wyoming that helps farmers. And it basically says if you're going to sell only locally within Wyoming, that you will be immune from all federal regulatory bodies. I want to create the exact same thing here in New York for all small businesses. If you agree, not by applying, just by signing a sheet of paper, that you will sell your product or service only in New York State, I want you to be immune from all federal regulatory bodies, period. You do not have to follow their rules and regulations. Now, what does that mean? That means big business will have to follow because big business always sells across state lines. But the small guy doesn't. It will give the small guy an advantage. It'll allow him to grow and become powerful and popular and make a lot of money so that when he or she decides to make that step into the big leagues, they will have enough money, enough cash, and they will have a plan 
to deal with all the federal regulatory bodies. But more importantly, it will also show that locally there's no zombie apocalypse because the FDA doesn't approve every skew. <laughs> right. right. People aren't dying in the streets. It's not the walking dead because the FDA didn't approve every skew. We will have proven that over the course of many years, which will then give us a reason to sue the federal government to stop it. Right. So just to, to round this out. Was, and for, was, was that oh, clear? Sorry. Yes, uh, it was crystal clear. Um, so so for, for people who are listening, um, last thing, what does the, uh, the outlook of the campaign look like right now? What is polling like? And, and what would you say, especially for listeners who might be in New York, uh, where should they go for more information? about your campaign? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Please go to LarrySharp.com. That's sharp with an E, and the E stands for electable. And you can also <laughs> go to Larry Sharp for New York Facebook page or Larry Sharp Instagram or Larry Sharp uh, Twitter. All, I have all of them. Feel free to join, pop up, listen, comment, all good. What does it look like right now? Recent polling shows two things, that when people know who I am, I am polling at 24%. 24 is amazing for a third-party candidate. But it also shows that a lot of people don't know who I am. About 77% of likely voters do not know who I am. The poll was done with people with 51% of the people polled were self-identified Democrats. 30% were self-identified Republicans. 19% were either self-identified as independent or other or nothing. With that poll, I poll overall, including people who don't know who I am, at 6%. There are five months left, and I'm polling at that. I have a lot of room to grow, and I'm on the uptick. But there's something more important. If you put me head-to-head against the Democrat, who is our current governor, His Majesty King Cuomo, King Andrew, if uh, against him and then the Republican, the sacrificial lamb, against Cuomo, the sacrificial lamb Republican, he loses by 10 points, 55 to 45. I lose by two points. 51 to 49. The margin of error is four points. That is a statistical tie. So I am already tied with the current governor in a head-to-head battle. This is what I'm talking about. We have a shot at real impact. We have a shot at actual victory. Now, don't get me wrong. To climb that mountain, I've got to get 77% of likely voters to know who I am. That's a big mountain to climb. Absolutely. But it's possible. If people support me and donate and let me know and, and let me know they need me and they want me, People will hear it. People will begin to know that. I can make that happen. But here's the reality. Even if I just beat the Republican, if I beat the Republican, that's all I do. If the, the King Cuomo still wins, I come in second. It will shake the Democrats up to where they will realize we have to stop being a communist state. We can't regulate all these industries out of existence. Larry Sharp got a big poll, a big poll. He showed a lot. And he's the guy saying, stop it. But not just that. Republicans are afraid to be Republicans when they see me out there saying, how about small government? How about small government? How about stop worrying about vice all the time? Republicans will stop being the guys who care about vice all the time and go back to what they're supposed to be going about, which is small business, small government. So it will make for better Republicans and better Democrats, even if I just come in second to be forward with you, even if I just break 10 percent, which is clearly going to happen. The odds of me breaking 10 percent are very high. The odds of being a Republican are even higher. The odds of me winning, still there, lower than the rest, but even that can happen if I get my name out. All right. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully uh, next time I'm in New York or you're in Miami, we'll, uh, we'll get together for, 
for one of your once every two year cigars. I love it. Perfect. Thanks to Larry for taking the time to do that interview. Here's a shameless plug that you might be interested in. If you were intrigued by Larry's perspective and want to hear more from him on a wider range of issues, head over to the Dade podcast for a longer interview with him. Uh, you can find that at dademag.com. That's D-A-D-E-M-A-G.com. That's sort of a side pet project of mine. But again, if you were interested in Larry's perspective and in his libertarian campaign, uh, you will have an opportunity to, to, in that podcast, hear from him on a much wider range of issues. We get into everything from the Second Amendment to identity politics and a whole lot more. So again, uh, look for that at dademag.com or just search for The Dade Podcast. As always, thank you for listening to the Cigar Snob Podcast. Make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Rate and review us while you're there. You can also find episodes of the podcast at cigarsnobmag.com slash podcast. Share this episode with friends and fellow smokers who you think might be interested in this interview, especially those in New York who are, uh, you know, who are in a position to, to vote in this upcoming election there. If you're a social media person, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search for Cigar Snob Mag. Finally, make sure to send any feedback, questions, or comments to feedback at cigarsnobmag.com. Again, that's feedback at cigarsnobmag.com. We might just respond to you here on the podcast or in the pages of Cigar Snob Magazine. Thanks for listening. Again, until next time, I'm Nick Jimenez, and this is the Cigar Snob Podcast.